Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, I have Jeremy Barr. He's the head of the uh, Bacteriophage Biology Research Group. He's also a lecturer at Monash University in Australia. And uh, the purpose of the call today is uh, he's also going to be a contributor to the virus book that I'm going to be putting out in the next couple months here. Um, so again, Jeremy, uh, he's going to be a good contributor. He focuses on bacteriophage, viruses that infect bacteria. But I'm also going to ask some questions about you know, viruses that infect people, et cetera. So Jeremy, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, uh, just to start with, before we get into the questions about you, what, what got you into uh, studying viruses? What, what attracted you to it? Yeah, I, I think I was really lucky in, in, um, in that I knew from an early age what I wanted to do. I think as a kid, I was always interested in science and actually fell in love with insects when I was sort of um, maybe eight to 10 and I was obsessed with them and reading all sorts of books. And, and then as I got older and moved into university, I, I drifted towards microbiology and um, eventually settled on bacteriophages. And I think, you know, looking back, I would arguably say that bacteriophages are similar to the, to the insects of, of the microbial world and that they're you know, incredibly diverse, they're unique, they're um, extremely exciting, and they've always got sort of different surprises. So, um, yeah, I've always, always been really, really interested in sort of weird or quirky aspects of biology. So I think that's what drew me to, to, to viruses. And what's your research about currently? Yeah, so so my lab at, at Monash University, um, we look at we look at bacteriophages. So as you mentioned, bacteriophages are, are viruses of of microbes, specifically of bacteria, and and our lab looks at phages in this concept of of tripartite symbioses. Which, um, if I was to break it down, I would say that um, within the human body, you have um, your your microbiome, specifically your, your bacterial aspect, and that these have have their own viruses being bacteriophages. But those phages don't just predate on their bacteria; they also interact with the um, human human host as well. So this this concept that virus, bacteria, and and metazoan or human host have all of these intricate symbioses. Uh, is sort of a focus of the lab. So looking at phages in the context of bacteria, but also within the context of the human and mammalian. So there are bacteria that they may not pathogenically interact, but they interact both with bacteria and with uh, eukaryotic cells at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think it's a, oh, it's a really, good. yeah, yeah. It's a really, you know, it, I think when you, when you think about it really logically, it makes complete sense, right? You know, your body has so many, mechanisms and, and, and ways to sort of sense and interact with the environment. And, and these phages are such a major component of the human body that I think it's, you know, it would be a miss to think that your body doesn't sense them or doesn't respond to them or interact with them in, in lots of diverse ways. So our lab is sort of uncovering lots of different mechanistic ways that, that phages can directly interact with, with the mammalian host. I think probably most people are afraid and they don't want them to interact with us because they think it'll be bad. Yeah, I can, I can definitely um, understand that viewpoint. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, a lot of our research is trying to shy, you know, we do do some pathogenic research, but, but um, you know, I guess that will be a major point that I'll sort of make in this interview is that these pathogenic interactions are such a small 
small component of virology that, you know, the vast majority of interactions are actually beneficial. So there's lots and lots of good things and, and beneficial ways in, in how these viruses interact with our own bodies that, um, you know, if we can begin to understand, then we can begin to apply them. So uh, jumping ahead a little bit, just because you brought this up, if, um, if my, if, if, let's say cells in my gut are uh, infected by a virus, yep. how do you think that's going to result in a change of the local microbiome near those cells in my gut? Yeah, so, so many different ways. Um, and, and I guess the, the first key point is whether you're talking about a eukaryotic virus, so a virus that can infect and replicate within the, the, the gut cells, or if you're talking about another virus, say, say a phage. And I guess I'll, I'll keep coming back in this interview to the phage perspective, but I can speak more, more broadly to the eukaryotic virus. And, and I, so to give you an example, so you know, a viral infection of your gut cells can change all of the metabolism and the, and the processes that, that are happening within that cell. And that can directly um, influence the, the receptors and the molecules that the cells will display on their surface and even their secretions. And so one of the big um, research areas that our lab is looking at is, is the mucus layer in the gut. And, and this mucus layer is critically important for your gut microbiome. It provides a food source, it provides a, um, a structural resource for them to grow on. And so there's been evidence that viral infections, not only pathogenic, but some you know, symbiotic or, or off-target infections or interactions is a better word. Um, can actually change that mucus structure and that can actually change the species and the growth of specific gut bacterial species. And this can have um, knock-on effects to the function of your gut, be that metabolism, formation, um, and many, many other complex ways. Huh. Um, how would you guess that the action of a, a phage versus a eukaryotic virus, let's take the example of in the gut, yep. uh, how would you think that, that both would affect, again, the microbial constituents that are local to the cells that are... Uh, you know, being affected. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's break it down. So I'll start with the I'll start with the phage angle. So obviously, the phage can directly affect the bacterial species. They can have top-down predatory can that can in. But looking at that direct interaction, and a lot of our research investigating this symbiosis phages. So there's an example that I'll, I'll touch on later. Where we show that phages bind layer and binding there, they increased interactions with bacteria. And another another aspect of our work is looking at engulfment by. And so this actually happened all the time back of the 30 billion phage uptake by cells average human. And so your gut cells are pulling those phages. Those phages assist, they traffic. And I think there's lots of um, molecular ways you carry um, and be that genetic information interaction and they can um, change metabolism that can then feed back to the gut market. The positive feedback with phages are transmitting the gut cell, which then feed back a signal back to that market. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's huh. sort of a, sort of a more of a um, sort of system level view that, that my lab's trying to break down in, in different specific parts. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going in a different order uh, for the questions <laughs> here, you know, because, you know, I'm focusing on your expertise, I think, first. Um, so if phages mediate behavior of, you know, obviously bacteria in our cells, um, you know, in the virion stage, I can yeah. see, okay, they, they probably don't really mediate any behavior, but once they're inside a cell, I mean, it seems like they're, they're like sitting at a control panel now and they're able to use the cell to accomplish what they need. So do you think that, um, you know, once viruses are inside cells, are they able to use the cell's machinery to do quorum sensing? You know, like if I'm a, again, if I'm, if I'm imagining a virus sitting in a, the control room of a given cell, can it communicate with other cells and say, hey, are you infected by, by a virus like me? And Again, can they yep. coordinate behavior by using the cell's machinery? Yeah, they definitely can. That's a, that's a really the control. Uh, so, so 
yes, they they absolutely can. And and again, I'm Beige Asper. Um, so this has been a somewhat somewhat some recent discoveries in the forum sensing and how uh, bacteriophages will co-opt bacterial co bacterial systems to actually regulate when they when they lice and when they kill a host and they persist as a lysage infection. Um, and so specifically, phages will um, there was a molecule named Arbituum, I think it was, which is a quorum sensing produced by a bacterial cell, which a phage is co-opted, and they use it to sense how how densely populated the bacteria. Um, community or ecosystem population is and they use it specifically to time when they're going to enter the lytic cycle and produce more virions or when they're going to stay as a lysogenic and it's sort of sensing that that extracellular bacteria population to maximize their reproductive success and if they they sense very few bacteria well it might be better to stay as a lysogen ride out your conditions wow. all through um, or on the flip side when those increase you can actually sense bacterial high density and thereby opportune time to enter into that's awesome um, yeah do you think that they're able to sense not only uh you know the relative a number and concentration of bacteria but do you think they're able to also sense if they're infected as well with yep. the virus just like them yep they definitely can and, and you know there's some incredible you know both molecular ecology mechanisms that, that these phages um and, and you know maybe one example i'll give you is, is the super super infection exclusion mechanism so this is when a, a bacterial host is already infected by, is typically in a lysogenic infection. So a phage is sort of persisting in its bacterial host and you know, riding it out, hope for better days before it ends the lytic cycle. Um, and, and these super infection exclusion mechanisms will actually block other phages from infecting that bacteria. So um, from the phage's perspective, it doesn't want another virus coming in, stealing its host for its own use. And so it will produce a range of um, proteins or enzymes that will either block the ejection or penetration of new phage genome cell or actively degrade those. And it can also, it also can delay um, those lysis events. So from a lytic phage that's actually replicating, there's a system whereby every subsequent phage infection um, won't, it, that, that phage won't take over the cell due to these exclusion mechanisms, but will, will be sensed by that infection, infecting phage and will actually delay lysis. And so you can delay lysis for, hours, days, you know, and, and continue this going. And, and from the ecological perspective, the phage is infecting and it's filling that cell with, with new virions, but it doesn't want to lice if there's a huge number of viruses already out in the environment because it would just be competing against them. So by continually sensing how many infections are sort of coming into this host cell, it can choose to delay, delay and wait until that cell is no longer being infected and then lice to op optimize its reproductive chances. Yeah, this goes to another question. Why is there a latency period? Um, and latency could be initial infection to lytic behavior, initial infection to lysogenic or lysogenic to lytic and back and forth. And it seems yeah. like you're saying that that's governed by a continual checking and reading of the environment and seeing when the conditions are right. Yep, yep, um, absolutely. So, you know, the, the, the latency period, I find it really fascinating because it's it's a it's almost like a metamorphosis, right? You could you could look at you know going back to that insect and where a um, you know a caterpillar changes into a butterfly, and it's a similar change, right? You go from a structural virion persisting in the environment into this quasi molecular state where where the virus exists purely as genetic information that's sort of controlling and manipulating the cell. So it's a really huge and rapid metamorphosis of, of that lifestyle, um, and and as as to you know why and why and when and how they exist in that lysogen uh, sorry in that in period um, there's there's a huge range of of reason and mechanism and I think it all comes back to optimizing that virus's 
um, replicative success, not only in the, in the bacterial host that it's in, but also in the ecology and the large relation, incredible ways that the phage can drive and manipulate that cell, um, whether that's producing virions or whether that's giving this, the cell benefits to then increase the virus's um, chance of persisting. Yeah, I saw a paper where, uh, I, I had to find the reference, but this particular virus, they noticed that uh, created tons of virions, but a lot of them were empty. And I mm. wonder if that was a decoy system, you know, whereby the, I, I think it was a eukaryotic virus, then the, um, the host would see a lot of these virions, maybe expend its immune response energy on trying to, you know, engulf and get rid of them. And then there would be a few select ones that do have the uh, genetic payload that would be used to carry out what's needed. Any yeah. thoughts on if, if, you know, why that would happen? Um, yeah, I, look, I could, I could definitely see, um, see, see a benefit to it. Um, and I, I might, I might take the, the other example in that, um, the, the opposite point of view in that if you're looking from a bacterial perspective, evading these viral infections is hugely important and you can make the same analogies to our own cells and against eukaryotic viruses. But some of these bacteria will produce, you know, small um, vesicles as almost decoys to absorb, absorb viruses and, and decrease the chance that the bacterial cell will be infected. Um, I, I can't think of it a specific example where a phage produces unpackaged virions. I know there's examples where you'll have sort of predatory viruses, which will try to um, parasitically package the virion of another, of another infecting phage with its own genome. And there's other mechanisms where the phage can package bacterial DNA or, or other, um, you know, molecular information. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting, interesting um, viewpoint. I don't know if I've seen that, that reference either. Wait, so are you saying that phage can, uh, you know, inside a cell, I would think the only thing they would do is package up new virions that are, faithful to what they are yep. but are you saying there are instances where a phage seems to direct activity where it, it does the capsid and then it stuffs it with different material and sends yep. it out yep absolutely really? yeah yeah so so this is this is one of the biggest mechanisms of horizontal gene transduction where where some phages just naturally do this by on accident where when they're infecting a cell um they won't completely degrade the bacterial host dna and on occasions, they'll package bacterial DNA in some virion. So now you have a virion, but it doesn't contain any phage information, it contains bacteria. So if that virion infects a bacterium, it can actually horizontally transfer that genetic information. So that actually happens quite commonly. And there's some recent papers showing that certain bacteria are actually super spreaders and really maximize this mechanism. And there's also examples of, of parasitic viruses where a virus will sit in a cell in a, in a lysogenic infection. And this virus has no, it has no structural gene. There's no mechanism of escaping that cell. Yet when, a, when another virus infects that cell and it starts replicating, it will produce structural protein. But this parasitic virus will actually steal its thunder and package its genome into, into those capsids. Um, so it can't infect on its own, but when another virus infects, it almost takes it over and steals all its work for itself so then it can go out and spread into new hosts. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's crazy. Yeah. Huh. Each thing you tell me leads to the next question without, you know, before I even ask it. So um, that's, that's amazing. So it, I saw a video and, you know, I read a paper on how I think it's a T4 phage enters into E. coli. And, you know, it was one of those Moonlander looking phages yeah. you know, with the, the yeah. collar and the base plate and all that. And, it was really sophisticated in how it entered, but what I, I wondered, what if you were able to create a uh, like a denucleated bacteria or mm -hmm. one that was empty except for the outer membrane? You know, would a phage land and dock and bind and enter, or do you think it would sense 
something is amiss and stop before it fully entered? It's a great, it's a really good question. Um, I think my first answer would be that it, it would absolutely um, you know, absorb and, and in, infect that, that I'll call it a decoy cell, right? Because bacteria do produce these, produce small vesicles that don't contain any genetic information as a decoy to sort of sequester phages. Um, so they can do that and they, and they will infect those decoy. And then it's sort of injected, the, vi- the, you know, the virus DNA gets in there and it's like, oh crap, there's no, you know, there's no ribosomes, there's no nothing here that I can, I can utilize. And it's sort of a dead end. But on the other, on the other sense, phages, phages mechanically sense their bacterial host. And so, I, so that T4 example is, you know, really, it's such a, it's, it's my favorite, favorite virus, um, T4. Um, and so it has these, these tail fibers, which mechanically wrap up and sit around its head. You always see them, them down in that space lander image, but they actually wrap up and sit around their head. And then that's their, that's their um, sort of um, highest energy state, if you will. And then they'll occasionally, they'll sort of snap down. Um, and they'll they'll reach out and they'll sense the environment. So they'll actually sit, snap down and tap on a bacterial cell. And it's thought that that tapping can actually sense whether or not a bacterial cell is is um, active. Um, I'm not exactly sure on the mechanisms there. I believe they're sort of um, maybe sensing you know the electro um, electrostatic potential or differences on that cell. Um, but it's thought that they they can sense whether or not a cell is is actively replicating or if it's sort of a, a dead or, or persisting. Um, remnant of a, of a cell fragment. Um, so there's a bit of both there. You know, they've got some really incredible ways that they, they operate. So uh, underlying all this, you know, a lot of the scientists I speak to, they're, you know, they, they believe in the, you know, the modern synthesis, you know, neo-Darwinism. It doesn't seem like you do. Um, you know, I personally think it, things go way beyond that. Um, yeah. You know, without directly answering that, I mean, do you, do you think viruses are alive? Are they contingently alive when they enter a cell? Are they alive the whole time? Yeah, I, I think I think they're alive the whole time. You know, I think this this argument of viruses can't be alive. They have all of these hallmark characteristics that we define as being alive. You know, I I would even sidestep the environment and say that sorry the argument and say that viruses are life. Right? They they are if not the most they they're arguably the most successful life form on the planet. Right? There's there's more viruses than anything else. Um, so they are at the, you know, one of the most basal forms of life as we know it. So this whole argument of are they alive, are they not, you know, it really doesn't matter, right? They're, they're life and, and they are everywhere and they control and influence almost everything on the planet. Yeah, amazing. Uh, do you, so you've given examples of when a virus infects a cell and then it's able to keep out other infective uh, viruses. Yeah. Do you see any instances where um, it's not just, you know, one virus, one cell that infects um, are there ones that require multiple viruses, let's say of the same species, in order to coordinate entry into a cell, or is each virus alone capable of entering or not entering? Yeah, it's a good. That's a really good. I would say that you know most of classic biology says that it's it's each virus is only you know is, is responsible for its own infection and its own um, entry into a cell. Um, but this is the amazing, you know, this is one of the most exciting things about virology is I think the viruses break every single rule of biology that we make. Um, you know, you can find an example of where they, they completely break that rule. And so there are, there are examples of viruses that are completely dependent on other viruses to, to replicate. And I gave that um, example of, of what we call a, um, you know, sort of cryptic phage, which lives in a bacterial host cell. Um, and it can't replicate on its own. It's got to rely on another virus to sort of piggyback. Um, there's another um, phage example of P2P4 where, where one of these phages relies on the other one to actually cause the infection and, and package it and transmit. So you actually have to use both of these viruses together 
um, to, to, to propagate. So, so there are definitely examples where they, they require other viruses to um, reproduce and, and continue on with their life cycles. Yeah, I imagine a phage, um, you know, attaches to a cell and then other phages are attaching to the cell and maybe through the membrane, through some kind of like transconductance or other signaling, they can coordinate action. Maybe, yeah. you know, again, two of them would be near each other and again, coordinate entry, et cetera. I wonder, yeah. I wonder how far this goes. I guess we don't well, know. Yeah. Yet. It's actually another, another thought on, on that, you know, so um, when, a, when a virus does infect a cell, sorry, phage infects a bacterial cell, um, if, if that enters into the lysogenic state, it can actually cause a process known as lysogenic condition where genes encoded by the phage will integrate into the bacteria. And that bacterial host now has access to that genetic information and can change the phenotype of this can happening. And so um, theoretically, you could change the structure or the surface of that bacterial cell, which would then open and allow for a, another phage infection that wasn't previously able to infect that. Um, so I could see systems where you can build successive, could allow additional viruses to predate on a bacteria due to the... See, this is the weird thing. Where is the life? In a, in a cell where is the life in a bacteria where's the life in a virus yeah if it enters and it's just genetic material i mean where what where is the life in it? it's strange yeah no for, no for sure and I, I completely see that argument but you know genetic material arguably is the most basal codes that life does everything that happens in our own cells and our bodies is driven by that genetic um, and so I really take that point of view that that life can exist as that genetic and that's true, right? You can, you know, we're right now in the, of this synthetic biology revolution where you can print DNA and you can insert that DNA into a functional lipid environment, create life, you will, it's just viruses do, right? At the most basal level, they transport genetic information, albeit or arguably life across space and time, stable beyond packaging. Do you, uh, do you think viruses have a group identity? Do they know self, meaning, uh, you know, these other viruses, their, their sequence is close enough that I consider them, you know, me. Just like, you know, bacteria form biofilms, probably preferentially with their own strain at first. Uh, do yeah. you think viruses, uh, again, have a sense of self and do they have a group identity? That's a, that's a really, it's a really tough thing. Um, I don't, I don't know if I have a, if I have a side, probably on either side. I, I would, I would imagine that they that they don't that um, for the most part that they are individualistic and that they require um, you know the success of their own information and 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 propagation of their own sort of virions. Um, but but there are examples of you know cooperation and, and you know I think quorum sensing is is maybe a good example of that. Um, so yeah, that's it's it's really tough. I could I could almost take um, either side of the argument. You know one one example that I was asked to do. So I was actually involved in a, um, in this graphic novel that we wrote with a, with a um, group of friends who, who run this sort of science communication company. Um, and, and we had to do this. We had to give the viruses a, a um, you know, anthropomorphize them and give them a, um, a way of speech. And so what, what we came up with was that these viruses would speak it as a hive mind. So they would, and in the book, they communicate as this whole, you know, collective swarm of, of phages that, that come in and, and, um, so that's how we how we gave them a voice in this book, which was a cool sort of thought experiment. But I'm not sure that's, that's cool. a really question. Yeah, is is that book available, or is it just privately yeah, yeah. between it, you and friends? It's called um, it's called The Invisible War: A Tale. On, it's a graphic. Um, it's set in one, and it was the story of a nurse who was treating a patient suffering a Shigella gut bacterial infection. Um, and then it, and it's sort of this double story: one set in World War One in, in sort of battlefields with the treating these soldiers, and the other one set in the battlefield, the gut, where the Shigella actually get in the gut and they get an infection, and the phages sort of fight them. I'll, I'll send you a link to it.
Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Um, I've heard of a definition of a quasi-species. I mean, what does that definition mean to you? And and if, you know, do you think that, uh, I mean, again, we're seeing examples of viruses essentially competing, at least inside of a cell, or uh, parasitizing each other. But yeah. um, I mean, I guess there has to be some identification of self and other, otherwise there wouldn't be uh, this, this competition, this parasitism. But um, yeah. again, what, what, what are quasi-species? Yeah, quasi I don't know if I know I have a definition, but it's this sort of continually sliding um, the definition, right? Where do you where do you draw the line of, of this is uh, its own individual species and where is another, right? You could, um, if, if you go into the genetic information, we can put percentages on it, right? We can say this, this virus is 98% similar to this other virus at a DNA level. Um, is that, does that define a species? I mean, we've, we've put arbitrary measures on that, right? I think in, in some bacterial sense, anything, you know, above um, or below 95% is considered a, a different species. Um, does that hold true for a phage? Is, is that just an arbitrary um, setting? It probably is, but it's something that we need to use to start to understand the, the microbial diversity. Um, but it's actually, it's a really, it's a really cool argument at what level does a virus begin to um, compete versus co-opt that genetic information based on, on its um, similarity. And I don't know if there is an answer in that, right? You could look at it at a, from a protein level and see, well, mechanistically, are these proteins similar enough that they do the same function and that they can be synergistic or when do they start um, competing? Um, and then to throw a spanner into the works there, you know, you've got to consider recombination. Um, and, and I think viruses exist right at this, this melting point and mixing point of recombination where they can very quickly co-opt other viral genetic information and create entirely new species. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's an example of um, an amazing co-option by either a bacteria of a, of a viral ability or a virus of a bacterial ability or eukaryotic yeah. cell of a, you know, et cetera? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I saw this question. I had a cool example. So this was, this work was done by an old colleague of Nick Shakur, um, SDU now. Um, he, what he found was, um, what he was looking at is, is these tube worms. So these tube worms are a free swimming uh, marine um, single cell organism. So they, they exist as free swimming state and they'll set oceans. Um, and then they have a, they have a morph, metamorphosis stage in their lifestyle where they settle as a, as a um, sessile tube worm. And they, and they typically form on, on the hulls of, of ships. So, you know, big military vessels have had some problems with these because they completely coat the underside of the ship and they create a huge amount of drag as, as the ship. Um, so they're everywhere, right? And, 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 and ships in particular spread these guys. To the crazy thing is that this marine, marine tube worm, when it transitions from this free swimming state to the sessile state, it requires a bacterium and, and it requires a specific bacterium. It's the Pseudomonas letuviolaceae. I wrote that down because I knew I wouldn't write um, and so it requires this direct interaction between this bacterium with this free swimming state. And then that interaction causes the tube worm to settle into or metamorphize and change into its sessile form. And it stays that as its sessile form for its life. The crazy part is that what Nick uncovered was that this bacterium had actually stole a phage tail fiber structure. And so you might've heard of these um, structures being type six secretion systems. Have you heard of these? No, I haven't. Um, so type six secretion system is a, is a bacterial secretion system, but it's what it is, is it's basically a phage tail. So that, that end of a, you know, of the classic um, space lander phage, bacteria have stole that entire gene and evolved it over the over millennia. 
and they express it on its surface. They'll, they'll produce these and then they'll express them on the surface and they'll use them to deliver proteins and DNA into, into other cells. Um, there's lots of examples of bacteria using the competition, almost like a tit for tat, like you stab me with one of these, I'm going to stab you with mine and inject it. The <laughs> um, yeah. But what Pseudomonas, what this Pseudomonas one does, which is crazy, is it's stolen a phage tail and it uses it to inject a specific protein into these free swimming tube worms. And that protein is what causes the tube worm to enter into its sessile um, worm state, which it stays for its life, which is just absolutely crazy, right? You've got an entire marine organism that can't reproduce until it gets into a sessile state and it requires a bacterium to inject a protein into it via a virus structure and its whole life cycle has evolved and been built. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. Hmm. Um, yeah. Going in the, in the direction of, you know, evolution, do you think, hey, which came first, viruses or uh, bacteria or eukaryotic yep. cells or, or prokaryotic okay. cells, I'm sorry? So I think, I think, you know, Luca almost had to be a, a prokaryotic cell, some of that. So I think cell came first. I, I see how, um, to, to go, to go a bit further and, and how and why I think an amazing role. Yeah, I know forest. Yeah. You know forest. Yeah. So this, this, this idea I heard him give at a, um, uh, at a, at a time, at least the, the basis, he, he thinks that viruses evolve from bacterial sex. Um, and that was oh. really cool. I really thought. And so, you know, that, you know, I, I, I really like that idea sort of built on that. So I think, I think a cell had to come first, but I think that that cell, if, if you think about the earth at that time, it was a big, mighty soup and, and life was probably very fragile. There was quite arguably really rare events that had to occur to, for life to be key. key and they were probably really rare events. And for, for life to really spread and diversify, I, I think cellular life hits this barrier where it, it simply can't persist across space and time long enough to mix and share genes. And so I think for life to have evolved beyond that, that early microbial swoop, I think you need viruses. And, and from that, and what I mean by viruses at that stage, it's not, it's not a purely pathogenic element, but more a way that you can package up useful genetic information and store it, right? It's, it's almost like a time capsule. You've got these stable protein packages that have packaged useful genetic information and they're almost sent out in the environment like time capsules. They're going to persist. So if that, if that cellular life dies off for whatever reason or gets outcompeted, the useful genetic information that it's evolved is, is spread across the environment until a point that that early virus encounters another cellular life and it provides it with that useful genetic information. So I, I, I think that those early viruses were absolutely key in driving and allowing life to escape that really um, risky early, early stages. Do you see any uh, analogs? Like I, I thought about extracellular vesicles and they seem virus-like, you know, they package genetic material and other stuff. They can readily enter into other cells. They can regulate their genes. They can, you know, who knows what else. And then I, I thought about, you know, even conception sperm infecting egg, you yeah. know, uh, and there's a whole you know, person's created from that. Do you think yeah. that there's any relevance to seeing that or thinking that? Yeah, it's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the sperm and egg. Um, it's a really interesting take on it. Um, and, and you're right. I think there's lots of, lots of analog to that viral transmission animation. And, you know, sex and, and mating, essentially, if you really want to break down the same conceptual process to a new organism, life form. And I think that's what early virus did. I think, I think to transfer genetic spread life into a gene. Um, and, you know, to come back to example, somewhere along the way, 
that when the virus is, hey, life's already good now. I can I can be much more efficient by, I think, parasitic virus came after the start as this sort of microbial sex. Mm-hmm. And at some point... Do you think uh, viruses are headed in some direction? You know, I, it doesn't seem like they're becoming more virulent over time. It, it seems like they're going towards being commensal or even mutualistic or, or endogenizing it to their hosts. I mean, do you, yeah. but do you see that? So... Um, not really. I, I, don't, I don't see them as going in a specific direction. I think one of the big, biggest myths with viruses is that they, they are pathogenic. Um, that's true for a very, very, very really small number of the viruses, right? It's just that we're, right? hey, we're living in, we'll arguably see. Um, but, you know, the viruses, vast majority are, are symbiotic. They, they exist all across the whole spectrum of IOCs. Um, and so I, I don't think that so no, I don't think that they're evolving in a specific way. They're becoming beneficial. Um, I, you know, if I was to distill my view of viruses, I, I think they they cover sequence space. So so if you look at you know if you were to distill life down into to in its DNA, um, you could then think about different um, niches or environments that that life could emerge and persist and um, you know be optimized within. And that's really you know that's natural selection and and. You know, selecting beneficial genes and combinations of genes to persist in environments in a, in a cellular life where you package that. But I think viruses exist and cover on such a, such a um, expanse of genetic information that they're almost searching and, and creating all of this sequence space that then cellular biology can co-opt and use to emerge and adapt and, and diversify. I don't know if that was... When you, when you say they're searching, when they're searching the... Uh... I guess this information space. Do you believe there was an information space to search? I mean, most people say, "Oh, it's random and you know, random mutations." And it's outside. It's outside of all organisms. There just happens to be a beneficial mutation or not. But do you think that there actually is a, an information space that living things attach to, and therefore that's where their abilities come from? Like, you know, if a a cow is born, how does it stand within a minute of being born? No one taught it, you know, or a baby suckles. Maybe Maybe all living things do attach to an information space. Yeah. So, so I, I think there is an information space. I, I it's not, it's not as here. You, know, you have to go, but, but the, I do believe there is. And I think cellular life has no way searching and we're just too slow. You look at the brain adapt. And, and so, and I think that holds true for a lot of us, a way than search and life can genetic at a scale that it to explore. And so to come back and give this, you know, reason, you know, viruses and masters can put by and they will recombine, they'll chop and change, share genes. Um, and probably 99.999, that's going to be a non-functional genetic space. It searched that that space. It didn't work. Um, but viruses have the number to be able to do that. It doesn't affect their, you know, replicative chance and success. And eventually they're going to stumble on this novel combination. We're going to come up with a new genetic space that we haven't been able to search before. And that may be able to be used and co-opted by cellular life to then um, push and expand um, that sort of genetic genetic landscape. I mean, in, in general, like, how would you, you're, you're expressing it already, but how do you see viruses playing a role in evolution and adaptation and maybe even speciation? Yeah. Um, I, I think that they are the major, I think they're one of the major driving aspects of evolution. Of course, there's, there's, they um, arguably play a, play a bigger role, but I think the, um, the emergence and, and transfer of this information is, is really driven, driven by viruses. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of examples of, um, you know, if we take the predator example, right? So, so viruses predating on a, on a specific bacterial population, 
one of the ways that the bacteria responds to that is to diversify, to create two species. And so now the virus can only infect one of those species and the other one escapes that, that viral pressure. Um, and then that one, you know, grows up. And so, so that's one way that viruses can drive diversification because if any one form of life becomes too abundant, then that's, you know, that's exactly what a, what a lytic virus is looking for in, in terms of replication. So viruses do diverse, do drive um, speciation. Um, I think one of the most fascinating aspects is, is recombination and how, how viruses recombine and how they shuffle and um, transfer genes. And I might, I might give an example of this because I realize I'm getting a bit too um, hand wavy. Yeah, tell, yeah I, I haven't asked, yeah, what is recombination? How does it work? What's an example? Yeah, okay. So, so, so recombination is really, you know, I, I would say simply it's the, it's the shuffling of genes, the recombining of genetic um, combination. And, and so viruses, viruses do this all. We have a specific example when you have multiple viruses in a cell, that gives the chance for those viral genomes to recombine and create an entirely new virus. Um, and, and the example I'd give for this is, is in the human. And so in the human gut, specifically in, in the phagome, collecting and sequence, the viruses are bacteria. Currently, if you can go to any person in the world, you can extract their, their DNA, DNA viruses from their gut and sequence them. And when you come back and you look at the sequence, between 50 to 90% of that sequence is completely unknown. And what, by, what I mean by unknown is never before seen, right? Never before seen combinations of DNA. Um, and we've been doing this for, let's say, close to 15 years now. Um, sequencing power has massively, massively increased over the last you know, two to five years. And still, we can still do this and we can still sequence people's viruses and we still find that between 50 to 90% have never before been seen. And so there's two arguments there, right? So, so one of the arguments is, well, we just haven't sequenced enough um, of the people. And so we just haven't really hit that, that plateau and that curve. And that, and that could be true. And that might, might hold that, you know, after another five or 10 years of really deep sequencing that we might uncover enough of this information to start building that database. Or it could be that, viruses are persisting at um, or, or adapting and recombining at such a rate that they're essentially creating new and novel combinations of DNA in every single person, in every single, you know, gut environment. Um, and that they're really rapidly searching this um, sequence space, recombining, mixing, um, you know, random mutations, all of those mechanisms that they're at this, they're just con constantly creating novel combinations of DNA. And we may never, you know, completely, catch up um and and be able to search and sequence that um you know i don't know which one's going to pull true I, I like the the infinite combination but but i you know think it's a bit um it's still a bit in fantasy and i think at some point we will you know fill in that sequence database but it's you know it's, it, it just goes to show the speed at which these can recombine and mix and and create new genetic information yeah it's like they're a vast omnipresent library of ability yeah. and if you could yeah. harness it I couldn't imagine what you could do. It'd be amazing. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Okay. Um, just a couple more questions. I mean, you've been rapid fire answering a lot of <laughs> No, it's fun. It's really good. Um, th this one's always concerned me. You know, I don't know, throughout all time, I'm just going to throw a number out there. I don't know. There's been uh, 10 to the 50th successful viral infections of, of something, you know, 10 to the 30. I don't know. We'll just throw out some huge number. Yeah. But if, if viruses, a lot of them are non-motile and they're just passive supposedly and floating along yep. and they're like 50 to hundred nanometers and they're encountering this gigantic host, you know, a, a person. So yep. there's this tiny, tiny thing in a huge field of, of host. How do they find their targets quadrillions yep. and, you know, tens of the 30th times over time? How, 
How does this happen so often if there's no guidance system, if there's no sensing, it was just la, they're just floating along. Such a cool thought experiment. I love, I love the scale. When you try to think how to encounter, you can't even comprehend such a cool, really love. So what, what, I, what I'd say is that as, as big as that, um, that divide is between the size of a virus, the numbers of viruses is so many, so many orders of magnitude more than that scale difference in size. Um, and so it's, you know, it's estimated there are 10 to the power of 31 phages on the planet. They're the most abundant biological entity on the planet. And we, no, no one can even begin to comprehend 10 to the power of 31, right? We can, we can barely begin to comprehend a, a billion, right? You look at some of these graphics that people show, you know, the wealth of Jeff Bezos compared to, you know, Bill Gates and the scale is astronomical. And that's one order of magnitude, two orders of magnitude. You're speaking about 10 to the power of 31, right? So that, that scale is, is, is beyond our comprehension, right? And that's, that's one thing that I'd really say. We cannot even begin to comprehend the numbers game that viruses play. And this comes back to that whole genetic landscape, but I won't, I won't go back to that. So, so to answer your question, how, how can a virus that's so small ever overcome and infect and find its host? You know, if we, look, if we go back to a phage, right? A phage floating through the gut, which is a hugely complicated and diverse ecosystem. How can a single virus find a bacterium? And I'd say that it can't. A single virus could never, right? right? It, it's the, the chances of doing that would be infinitesimally small, that it would probably never happen. And so the only way that it can happen is by having these ridiculously large numbers, huge, huge numbers that we can't. And, and I, so maybe I'll come up at it from the other angle. Um, how many viral infections are successful? Right? And I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that, but it, it, it will be infinitesimally small, right? If there's 10 to the power of 31 viruses, there's probably, you know, at least 90% of those are failed infections or, or viruses that are just sitting in the environment somewhere, hoping and waiting to be used. And so, so viruses, they, they overcome this problem of scale across space and time with, with numbers that we can't comprehend. And when you flood a system with that many numbers, encounters that, that were borderline impossible become borderline, um, you know, they, they, they're almost, almost absolutely going to happen. And so that's how right. viruses are. And that, that natural sort of diffusion and persisting in that environment is going to drive these chance encounters. And that's going to, that's going to drive more and more of these viruses to persist. Can I, can I give you one, one more example of that? And this is from, from some of my research I did in my postdoc with, with Forrest. Um, and it's a, cool example that I wanted to touch on. And it comes up, it, it talks about this, like how, how does a virus find and encounter a host? And what we looked at was in, in the mucosal surface. So in the gut, you've got um, your cells and you've got, and those cells produce a mucus layer. And that mucus layer is really critical to support your microbiome. Um, and what we found was that specific phages would bind and stick to that mucus. So they're, they're viruses existing, diffusing, you know, just randomly. And then they'll encounter a mucus, they'll encounter a mucus strand and they've got specific proteins on their head, which allow them to stick to that mucus. It's, really, it's a really weak stick. So it'll stick for a little bit and it'll detach and it'll keep diffusing. And it's sort of this on off motion. And what we found initially in our first paper was that by sticking to that mucus layer, they protected those mucus cells from bacterial infection, right? So you, you could think of this as like a, going from a 3D space into a 2D surface where phages stick to that mucus. And if a bacteria tries to come through, they're now entering a higher concentration of phages and that they're more likely to be infected, um, which is a really simple, simple solution to that. 
But then we got, we got really detailed into the math and we started looking at how these phages diffused. And so I actually watched them in real time on a microscope and we tracked them in water and we found that they diffused normally. And then we tracked them in mucus and we found that they diffused subdiffusively, which is this really complicated mathematics behind diffusion. Um, and, and to make it really simple, what we found or what we showed was that they would, phages would diffuse normally and then they would stick to a mucus and then for an undefined period of time, then they would diffuse again. And it was this sort of on off motion. And, and we started looking at like search strategies. So have you ever heard of like, have you heard of a Le Levi flight, Levi flight? Uh, no. What is it? No. So a Levi flight is a search strategy that certain um, animals will use. So they've, they've shown this in, a, in an albatross where an albatross will, will fly in this specific manner um, to, to search for prey in it. And it's a mathematically optimized search strategy to find something. They've shown this in honeybees and in insects, even in hunters and gatherers from Af Africa use this search strategy known as a Levi flight. And so we, we hypothesized that the by the phages sticking, they, they exhibited this subdiffusive motion and that this was a strategy. It was a mathematical search strategy that allowed the phages an increased chance to infect the bacteria. So I realized that was, that was really long and winding. So just to, to recap, so we found that phages stuck to mucus and that changed their motion, their diffusive motion, and it gave them an increased chance to encounter and, and find a bacteria. And we, we made an analogy that that was similar to a search strategy. So even though- So, so boiling, boiling this down, it wasn't random motion. It was a heuristic that is echoed by other creatures in nature. Yep. And even just mechanically, Yep. They would, it was like, uh, like you're in the, in the ocean, you're grabbing onto flotsam and moving, yep. you know, using, you know, uh, anchor to anchor. Yep, exactly. Yep. And it was, that's you know, amazing. Yeah. It was super cool. It was, it was a huge amount of work. You know, that, that was really project. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> if you would, uh, I just have two or three more questions and then, cool. you know, um, for a given disease, you know, if, if I'm the first person to get it, you know, if, if I'm the first person to get a viral infection, let's say, I don't know, from a monkey, and I just label myself number one, yeah. and then I infect, you know, my brother, he's number two, and then he infects his girlfriend and number three, and let's say someone's number 20 in this chain, this passaging chain, I don't even know what you call it. What do you think, what a, what do you think the virus would look like in them versus number one or number 10? Yeah, so, so it, would, it would have it would have used the term micro. So it would have um, optimized itself to replicate in the human, right? Within, you know, patient. Um, and that's, you know, on a genetic level, that's probably going to be a bunch of point mutations in, in the virus's genome. Um, that's going to cause, th these aren't massive jumps, right? These are, these are micro jumps. They're, they're really small changes that the virus can make to maximize its replicative efficiency. And, and to go back, to go back to phages, sorry to keep doing this, but it, but you know, a phages is a virus. And we, we actually do this with phages all the time. So another aspect of our lab that we're working on is phage therapy. So the use of a phage to combat a bacterial pathogen, specifically ones that aren't responding to antibiotics. And we go out in the environment all the time and we find novel phages that can kill these superbugs. And what we find is that we, when we first isolate that phage that can infect a superbug, is it's not that great at killing it, right? It might, you know, not produce that many viruses. It might be quite slow. And so what we do is we passage that phage on that host multiple times. So we'll let it grow, you know, overnight for successive days. And what we'll find is that at the end of that, that virus is, is better. It's much more efficient and in infecting that host. And what's happened is you've gone through these like microevolution steps, these point mutations that slightly optimize the virus to that host. 
So I think these are micro jumps that allows the virus to almost, you know, speciate to, to better infect its host. Huh. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Has anyone done this with bacteria and looked at the population of virus, you know, population of phage and sequenced all of them to yep. see the differences and then you passage them, sequence them all, passage them, sequence them all and yep. see how the, how the populations change and grow. And yep. All the time. So it's a, you know, th this field of experimental evolution is really cool. Um, there's been lots of classic, ex classical examples of a single phage and a single bacterium and looking at how they co-evolve with each other. Um, you know, we're actually, we're actually doing an experimental evolution experiment right now was to wrapping up on that, on that phage and mucus, rather than evolving the phage to the host, what we've said, can the phage to better stick mammalian mutant can it can accumulate mutations that increase its fitness. And so it's actually, I, I would say that the use of um, in the field of it has been critical, probably the number they're generating inside that they can you know, really rapidly explore this state and sequence and figure that out. I wonder um, if we understood it well enough, you might be able to use viruses as like a biological AI to search the information space for an answer faster and, and better than we could with just computers. That's a super cool thought. I'd never thought that's pretty awesome. Well, you gotta, you gotta figure it out and make something like that. That would be like yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Oh, well, good. Well, Jamie, I mean, this has been awesome. It's like a tour de force, this interview. I love it. You know, thank you so much for, for doing all this. No, no, um, that was really fun, Richard. Is there, is there anything else you want me to ask you? Or um, if not, I'm going to ask listeners where they can find out more about your work because there's like so much there. It's amazing. Yeah, no, I think I think we covered a lot. There's nothing off my head. Okay, and, and where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so um, Google Internet's probably easiest. You can go my name and our lab will come up. So our lab is, is at Monash University in the school and uh, the address is barlab.org. Um, I'm also on Twitter, so Jer at Jeremy J. Barr. But yeah, usually, you know, email, more than happy to respond. Okay, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming and contributing to this book. And uh, you're a lot of great examples, so I appreciate you being here. Yeah, no, thanks, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.